Paul is chained. He's chained to a guard or two. Every single night when he closes his eyes, every single morning when he wakes up, he's waiting to appear before Caesar. This is just about the exact same sentence I start off every message. And and the reason is, is I'm amazed. (laughs) I, I, I try to just picture a little bit of that. Are you the kind of person that gets upset if you're 15 minutes behind a schedule? Are, are you a person that when all of a sudden traffic takes a detour and you go like, are you kidding me? How about you just kind of listen to God? You're obeying God. You're an amazing apostle. And God says, I've got a detour. Are you kidding me? So every day you get up. Hey, what do you think? You think I'm going to go get to see Caesar today? Well, uh, Paul... Yes, we just questioned last week. <laughs> I don't know. And then on top of that, chained. Chained. Paul, though, sees something different than most of us see. God, you're in charge. God, you really are ready to be able to teach me something. Maybe, God, you even have an assignment for me. No kidding. You have a sense of humor, God. (laughs) The chain thing? And God did have a plan. He had a plan to evangelize all of the soldiers in the Praetorian Guard. Four years, over and over, chained the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine, especially the rough ones, can you imagine the ones that, oh, man, you, you did not want to cross? And they get that slip. Tomorrow you're with Paul for four hours. All he's going to do is talk about Jesus. How he changed his life. la di da di da da But you know what? Something changed. That dude's different. Even at five years old, something changed in Jackie's life. Maybe we don't understand all that changes. But you know, at Paul, at his stage, what he's doing is going over and over and over again. Do you believe God saved me? Do you believe that I was on a certain track? Do you believe everything I thought was really super and wonderful and successful? Do you know what? (laughs) It isn't. Knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus. Oh, (laughs) this is so amazing. Now, we look at some of Paul's background. 
How amazing was it to get flogged 39 times? Not once, but at least twice. How about the old shipwreck? That's something you want to sign up for. <laughs> Floating in the sea. How about the rotting? How about the prisons? And yet, what is he doing? He is, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> no kidding. I've been looking at my life. I've been seeing people responding. I get the opportunity to proclaim God's good news to a bunch of surly people. This is amazing, God. And so that's his background. Paul's intensity and passion seem to grow as we go deeper into this letter. But we're starting to notice some repetition. If you've been with us, this is the 10th week that we've been in Philippians. And he's not repeating because he's slow. He's not repeating because he's got dementia. He's repeating because it's important. And today what you're going to see, near the end of the letter, Paul sees the people in the Philippian church struggling. Struggling in ways like all of us struggle. But he knew about their struggles personally. He loved them. He cared for them. He did not want them to exist. He wanted them to thrive. If Paul were here today, he'd be speaking the same message to us. He, he doesn't want any of us to kind of get up in the morning, kind of go through the day, kind of shut your eyes and do the same thing the next day. He wants you to see your purpose. He wants you to understand the salvation that he has offered and the life change that is happening. He is excited. So as he begins to close out this letter in Philippians chapter 4, he addresses some of these struggles right on. Struggles, well, the Philippian church knew about it, but struggles realistically that probably each one of us have as we do our journey I'd like to read to you Philippians chapter one, uh, 4, starting in verse 1 through 5 before I pray. So turn your screens, or you can look up on the screen, or open your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you, and I long to see you, dear friends. For you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. Now I appeal to you, Eodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord, and I say it again, rejoice. 
Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. And remember, the Lord is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We know that we need to hear from you. Today, as you ordained it, we're in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Some of the things I think that are in our text are redundant. Some of the things we've read before, some of the things we may have heard, I don't know, a hundred times. But for some reason, Paul sensed that these Christians were struggling. They needed some encouragement. They needed to understand who you are and what our assignment is. So, Father, we, we pray that you open our eyes. We pray that you would help us hear what you want us to hear. We also know, Lord, that we're not the only ones who are teaching your word today or the only ones who are praising your name. There are people all over the world who are coming before and learning and listening and being equipped Oh, Father, we pray that your kingdom would come. We pray, dear Father, that you would send us out as salt and light in a world that is hurting, that is discouraged, that is disjointed. We thank you for the privilege of representing you. Father, I also want to confess and be obedient. This week, Lord... Let's focus in on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And it's a text I'm sure I've read a lot of times. But Paul is talking to Timothy and instructing Timothy how to pray. And he told Timothy this. Pray for all people. And God, I got to be honest, it wasn't just pray for your friends or pray for those in the church or pray for, you know, those that you like. The admonition was pray for everyone. And so I started looking at my list and I started to try to remember all the people I prayed for. And I don't think I prayed for a lot of people I didn't like. And I don't think I prayed for a lot of politicians that don't vote the way I want. Or for people that maybe don't share my lifestyle or my priorities. And God, my heart, it just broke. Because that's not your heart. You said, pray for everyone and ask God to help them and intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. So I started doing that. And I pray, Father, for everyone. I I pray, dear God, that you would be with our president. And that you would be with Congress. And that you would be with the Senate. 
and you would be with the Supreme Court, and you'd be with our governor and our mayor. I pray that you would be with my neighbors. I pray, dear God, that you would help them. Help them know you. Help them in life. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray, Father, that if they don't know you, they would see you clearly and respond to your grace. And I pray for those that do, Lord, that you would give them strength and energy for this journey. And God, I thank you for that. There's times I focus, is on, I focus on differences. But I thank you for them. And I pray you bless them. I pray, dear Father, too, for the churches in our area. Some of them, the chapel in Grace Point and Casa. I, I, I pray, dear God, that you would use these pastors and these leaders and these teachers, that you would empower their youth workers and their children's workers, and that your army would be given energy as all these churches teach and honor you. I pray for our church. I, I pray, Father, for those who are faithfully holding babies right now. I pray for those who are thinking again about serving. I thank you for all the different folks, Lord, that you have sent here. Because we are your body. And we have the opportunity to encourage one another and represent you to others outside our walls. God, there's so much that distracts us. But for these next few minutes, we would ask you, God, that you would help us focus on these verses. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, there's... No doubt about Paul's love for the Philippian church because even in this verse, first verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul calls them dear twice. Dear. Let's read. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, say true to the Lord, I love you. And, and again, I, I'm not... I know I've stopped for a second here. But this is a grown man. Not to say that men can't say, I love you. Although it's hard for some. You know? But Paul is pouring his heart out. My dear brothers and sisters, stay true. I love you. I long to see you. Dear friends, for you are my joy, my crown, and I receive my work. Paul knew of the Philippians. He understood their struggles. And especially starts off from the very beginning knowing that they did not depend upon God well. 
He's already talked about developing intimacy with God better, getting to know God better. But Paul knew of the Philippian Christians' struggle with their dependence upon God. So Paul's first word of advice is persist in your union with Jesus or with Christ. Persist. He probably, if I were going to translate this, would would say it's like this. My, My dear friends, my brothers and sisters, I love you. I long to see you. You make my heart dance. You are my medal, my symbol of success. Therefore, dear friends, persevere. Stand firm. Persist in your union in being closely joined with Christ. That's where the focus is. Persist, persevere, stand firm, stay true. These are all words describing either, in this context, a soldier standing at his post or a runner who must adhere without deviation to the course that is marked out by the gospel. It is a command. It is not a suggestion. And it's in the active voice. Persist, keep persisting, keep persisting, keep persevering. This is huge. Remember Paul's words in chapter 3. He was running down the wrong course. All that used to be valuable to him, he realizes isn't. The valuable thing, the new priorities that he basically had is, hey, I want to know Jesus. I want to grow in my intimacy. This is where life is found. I need to spend time with God. I also need to experience The power over sin. I feel shackled. But Jesus gives me that authority. I don't have to succumb. I have a new master. And then he also said, I want to grow in suffering. I I want to suffer more for the cause of Jesus because I learn who Jesus is better. I learn how to serve others better. I am more dependent upon others or or on God as a result. Our culture shouts. We listen to the wrong voices and make the wrong people our heroes. The enemy loves to deceive every one of us and works hard. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said this, is that the enemy's purpose, the whole reason the enemy exists, the whole reason the enemy gets up every morning, well, he's around all the time, is to steal, kill, and destroy. And then he follows up and says, oh, but, but my purpose, the reason I came, Jesus said, is to give you a full and abundant life, to give you a reason to get up, to walk with you. So Paul's saying, I know you're going to struggle. I I know that spending time with Jesus isn't always high on your priority list. But I'm ending this letter. I've already shared with you my testimony. Spend time with Jesus. You will never, ever regret it. Paul also knows that Christians struggle with people. Even church people. Paul's second word of advice is keep accounts short. Let's read chapter 4 verses 2 
and 3. Now I appeal to you, Eodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they have worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Paul was troubled. Two women were at odds, which meant that the church was in danger of taking sides, of being divided, and having ministry thwarted. On top of that, the spiritual leaders within the congregation were not taking the problem seriously enough to become involved and to help solve it. Again, I would probably put these verses in this context. I'll appeal to you, Eodia and Sentiki. I Please, I am pleading, settle your disagreement, be of the same mind, agree, iron out your differences, and make up, because you are closely joined to the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my faithful companions, my yoke fellows, join in helping them. You know they are part of God's family and have worked hard on Clement's evangelism team. You know, when I look at these verses, a few things stick out to me. First of all, Paul is direct. He names names. Previously, and you can look at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, his exhortations were generalized. Can you imagine a congregation kind of like this, and they're all excited, and the news goes out, hey, the Apostle Paul sent us a letter. Why don't you join us, and we're going to read it. And they start off and they hear all the love that's going on and the encouragement and and all that. And they get to this part. And these two ladies, one is sitting there and one is sitting there because they don't sit together. And they hear their names. Whoa, whoa. Now, now, to be honest, not much is known about these women other than they were at odds. And that they had previously been on a team doing significant ministry together. We don't even know the cause of the rift, to be quite honest. Which tells me that the reason didn't seem to be important, but the pathway to reconciliation was. Paul starts off pleading and begging. That sends a message. He's asking them, settle your disagreement because you both belong to the Lord. You are both part of God's family. And what he is saying is this, because of Jesus, because you belong to God, you can resolve your conflict. So settle your disagreement. You see, they and we are new creations and have the Spirit's enabling power to love and to forgive, just like Jesus loved and forgave. Isn't it amazing? I mean, one of the the scenes on the cross that I just can't get over is Jesus, this, this, well, 
He's a mess. Doesn't even look like the, a human. He's so mutilated. And he looks down and says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Who does that? Who? We get offended. Someone cuts us off in the road and we're ready to bring lightning bolts on them. You know, at least two flat tires or something like that. But Jesus had a different perspective. In fact, Paul, as, as we know, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 of this chapter, all right, described who Jesus was. And we saw that Jesus humbly gave up his rights for the good of others to resolve differences. We need to see others the way Jesus saw them and treat them the way that Jesus treated them. Because it's because of the Lord's power, because of their commonality in the Lord, and because they are willing to submit and trust the Lord that these two ladies can settle their disagreement. You see, whatever the rift involves, we all can extend grace and forgive because it hurts you and it hurts the church. Secondly, in this section, Paul calls for intervention. Now, conflict doesn't always call for intervention. Uh, Jesus taught us in Matthew 18 that if someone sins against you, you go to them. And hopefully, right at that moment, you can work out the scenario, the situation, extend forgiveness, or whatever else needs to happen. And you move on together. But sometimes it doesn't work. And what Jesus says even then is, hey, if for some reason there's no response, well, go get someone else and bring them with you. Now, Paul here, at least in this situation, doesn't see any progress. So he alerts the whole church to the problem and urges them to help these women. Now, in this text, and and actually I'm going to go over a few of the translation things and not to really confuse you or even cause you to doubt any of God's word. But in this specific translation, it's hard to differentiate whether it's an individual that Paul is talking to or whether he is talking to the whole church to get involved. And I don't think it's clear. But realistically, what he is saying is that someone needs to get involved. And by asking for help, Paul reminds us of the importance of the church family assisting in the reconciliation process or a process that's not going well, where there is a rift, where there are schisms. The apostle didn't lay out a precise remedy for Iodia or for Syntyche. But handed it over to the Philippian church family to help these ladies. The church leadership needed to recognize when godly intervention is needed and necessary. Over the years, this has consistently happened in 
quite a few, in fact, all the churches I've been part of. And recently has happened right here in our Crosspoint family. Thirdly, Paul reminds everyone that this rift has affected ministry. Oh, and nobody wants to see that happen. Paul knows these two ladies love the Lord, and they had been faithfully serving him. But the rift had throttled the ministry. So Paul says, settle your disagreements. The team is fragmented. Jump back into the ring and make a kingdom difference. Now the truth is, I've taken some extra time covering this passage because I see it as important. And I see it as, in many cases, churches struggle with conflict. But God has given us some opportunity to understand it. So I'd like to ask you three personal questions. First one, do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of your church? I, I don't know your answer, but, but let me say it this way. We should. We should. Here are two wonderful servants of Jesus at odds with each other. Which means we could be there too. Every member can be a threat to unity. And actually that should sober us. Next. Are you humble enough to ask for help or receive help when you have a conflict? It's hard. But sometimes you can't get over some things and, and you need the body to come around you. Because struggling well with life together is a blessing. Finally, last question. Are you prepared to help? Being the person or the catalyst? Let me just remind you, authentic relationships usually mean conflict. This is one of the things that I go over, especially in premarital counseling. There are some almost married young people. And I don't know what planet they live on. But believe that as soon as they enter into this holy matrimony, <laughs> life is good. Oh, you float. You get up. You enjoy each other. You kiss a lot. You know, no problems. What? Hey, marriage is awesome. Marriage is wonderful. Marriage is ordained of God. But I am telling you, if this is an authentic relationship, there will be conflict. In our house, conflict gets really loud. Maybe not in yours. But the truth is, how do you deal with conflict? Conflict means having awkward conversations. I love saying that. Conflict is hard, but conflict means having awkward conversations. The good news is that those in God's family can resolve their conflict, which brings God great honor and glory. You see, honest conversations are critical in understanding conflict. So you may learn the reason for the rift 
In fact, I see there are five common reasons for conflict. And what I'd like to do is not go over these a lot, but, but just share with you that there are reasons that people are at odds with one another. Sometimes as you talk it through, it's been a mistake. And if it is, you own it and you ask for forgiveness. Sometimes you're in conflict and there's just plain a misunderstanding. And again, you could go through a lot of things, but I'm I'm just shouting them out right now. If that's the case, you own it and you ask for grace. You blew it. Sometimes the conflict happens because there's a deliberate wrong or a sin you've sinned against a brother or a sister. In that case, you need to repent, you need to confess it, and you need to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes conflicts are honest disagreements. (laughs) There's not a right answer here or a right scenario. So basically what you do, you accept it and you agree to disagree. All right, that's just part of life. And lastly, sometimes there's a personal difference. There just is. You accept and you love one another. Now one last thought before we move on would be, Division in the body not only damages the health in the ministry of the church, but listen to this, it also affects the witness to the world. I don't know how many of you have been part of church splits. I don't know how many of you have ever had the agony of going through and, and, and watching Groups of people that love you just go their own way because they cannot resolve the conflict. I don't know what it looks like to you, but to my neighbor, hey, are you the guys that fight so much that you can't get along and you just start another church? Yeah. You want to come? No. No, I I, I don't want to come. I'd much rather tell them, you know what, we got a bunch of imperfect people. We have conflicts all the time. But we sit down, and we love each other, and we love Jesus. And we work it out. We do. The next thing I saw that Paul struggled, or, or that the Christians in the Philippian church struggled with was joy. Paul's third word of advice, rejoice in the Lord. How many times in the book of Philippians do we have to hear this? Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Well, apparently, Paul found it necessary to issue the command to rejoice once again because some of the folks in this church, not our church, are slow. They needed to hear it again. I think that's why, why Paul touched on the complaining part a little earlier in the letter. But Paul understood joy comes from our relationship with Jesus, not from our circumstances. It is not about getting what you want. It's about being grateful for all that you have in Jesus. You are filled. I am filled with joy because of Jesus. Our focus is on his grace and his salvation. Past, present, and future. 
Lastly, Paul saw that Christians were struggling. Those folks in the Philippian church with gracing others. Paul's fourth word of advice and the last bit of advice from this message will continue this next week. But he says this, let everyone see how considerate you are, how gently you treat others. Now, the idea of gentleness or graciousness was touched in chapter 2 in the first few verses. But scholars tell us, not me, scholars, that this Greek word is not easy to translate. Now, I think most of you understand most of the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And so we have the privilege of having really sharp people that understand the language and the culture, and and they get in groups. And some groups called the ESV, and some group is called the NLT, and some group is called... and, And they meet, and they try to discuss what is it, what is the best way that we can put all this in English? Well, what I understand on this word, scholars are going, oh my word, I, I, honestly, I, this one's a tough one to figure out. But I do know this, being gentle, gracious, and considerate gets across the idea here. And the opposite is being contentious and self-seeking. So really, what Paul was saying is that Sometimes we struggle. We're a little bit more contentious and self-seeking rather than gentle, gracious, and considerate. You see, what Paul understood is that a gentle, considerate person will stick out in our culture. Just does. Christians who walk with Jesus grow in gentle. Say, Rick, that is the worst English. You know, but, but that's true. We grow in gentle. And I also want to say this, is that competitive people really struggle here? J- just so you know, every game you play, every time you're in some kind of competition, gentle usually goes on the side. I have never read, and, and I've not read everything about the Bears draft, but I guarantee Everything I have read, not even one description was, Joe Smith was drafted because he's gentle. No! You, you want this ferocious, dynamic, skilled. Uh, now, I guess you, you can be gentle in temperament, but football usually doesn't kind of give us that picture. You see, Paul's motivation for being gracious and gentle is that Christ is near or that Christ is coming back soon. And, and I know this, this again, I'm, I'm not trying to shake your authority again in the Scriptures. But this word also can be translated either way. If you look and you go through all these different translations... It's going to be translated either, at this point, Christ is near or that Christ is coming back soon. The teams who did the translation have to choose one way or the other. Now, this gets interesting. 
All right, I I think it's actually kind of cool. If Paul is referring to Christ's presence, in other words, Christ is near, that's what your Bible translation says. He would be calling their attention to the fact that God is close to the Philippians and he is ready to assist them in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. Hey, God's there. God's with you. God's going to encourage you. God's going to help you represent Christ. That is a great text. Or if Paul is referring to the Lord's return, he's reminding us that Christ's imminent return should encourage us to live our lives differently, live lives worthy of reward. Jesus is coming back. This is not our life. There's a future. Now, I think, and this is what's so cool about the Bible, it may be wrong to choose between these two interpretations and to remove all ambiguity by the translation. Apparently, God knew what word to use and knew how ambiguous it would be. Both translations or interpretations are theologically correct. What happened if God just said, use this word, Paul, because I want you to know both of these scenarios. God is with you and God is coming back. Wow. So God used Paul to encourage this church. As I wrap up, Paul gives us some advice with our struggles. Maybe you, you're struggling with intimacy with God. Life is too busy and you really don't spend a lot of time with Jesus. Maybe you're in the middle of a rift. Maybe there's some conflict that you haven't been able to work through or work out. Maybe there's a lack of joy. You're still complaining a lot. You're still not accepting God's sovereignty in your life. You struggle over and over again asking why instead of experiencing joy and focusing on how great of a salvation and Savior and God that that we have. Or maybe you just haven't been very gentle lately. It's a lot easier to be gruff. It's a lot easier to run over people. I mean, how many gentle guys actually win at the end of the race? You know, one of the songs that we sang was called The Goodness of God. And to be quite honest, I, I just broke down. I, I uh, started singing the words and, and nothing came out. And then I tried looking at the words and I couldn't read them because my eyes were filled with tears. And, and I just wanted to stop and say, you know, that's what Paul wants is for us to understand the goodness of God, realizing that, yeah, we're fallen people. Yes, we are going to struggle. 
but all my life, you've been faithful. With every breath I am able, I will sing, I will tell, I will proclaim of God's goodness, of God's grace, of God's mercy. You know, God, I am going to struggle. I, I, I know I'm going to struggle. I need you. That's what the church is. It's a group of believers struggling well with life together. Hanging on, fixing their eyes on Jesus. Listening to his word, trusting him to do what he asks us to do. And to let him provide the fruit and the joy and the fulfillment. So God gives us some advice to help us with our struggles. And I'm asking you, what is the Holy Spirit asking you to do today? What is the Holy Spirit asking you to keep doing? Or what is the Holy Spirit asking you to confess? I'd like you to bow your heads, please. And if you've been part of our series, you know at this time what I've done is ask people to stand if God is convicting them. If God is asking them to do something, if God is encouraging you to keep on doing something, if God is speaking to you, would, would you stand right now? And I'm going to pray for you in a moment. Nobody's looking. But if God is working in your heart, would you stand? Would you stand? Father, I'm so grateful that you're our dad. I'm so grateful that you loved us and you made the first move so that I might become a son of yours. I, I don't deserve that. There's no one here in this room actually that deserves that. But God, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for walking with us. I want to thank you for your word. I want to say thank you for the hope that you give each one of us. I want to thank you, Father, so that in spite of our struggles, that you have promised to walk with us and to encourage us and to strengthen us for the journey. Father, there are some folks standing right now and you have been talking to them. You have been prodding them. You perhaps, God, are encouraging them to do something different, to start something fresh, to continue to do something that will bring you great honor and glory. I thank you, Father, for their soft hearts and for their response. God, work in them. Empower them. Father, I pray for all of us that we would hear you 
clearly and respond to you quickly. Father, if there's some sin in our lives, I I pray, Father, that you would give us courage to confess it. We love you, Lord. And I ask you to send us out as your representatives and make a difference in this world. I would ask that you sit down now. And for the rest of us, would you all stand with me as we continue to close our time in praise and worship of the King. Thank mm-hmm. you.